a code red for humanity, curb emissions and dramatically reduce consumption or face a world that is fundamentally different. Changes in ice sheets, deep ocean temperature, they are irreversible and will continue for generations to come. This is the very last moment when we have in which we can actually hope to stem some of these disasters. It is unequivocal that human activities are responsible for climate change. If unprecedented changes are not made and made soon, there will be irreversible damage to the planet. Zero carbon. East tall. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbonista Series 3, The Sky's the Limit. I'm Ian Collins. We're currently up to our necks in green fodder at this end. Despite that horrific backdrop of what is happening in Ukraine, we plough on with the overarching agenda of the day. Our man who is knee-deep in events and doing his darndest to shine that searchlight onto where the real bad guys are is the environmentalist and entrepreneur Dale Vince. Morning, Dale. Yeah, morning in. Another glorious introduction. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just stand here and listen and wonder what you're going to say can't, next. Can't help myself. Um, well, let's start with Ukraine, because there is a, a huge environmental component to this crisis. I think it's really interesting in, in this respect, you know, what the Ukrainian crisis has really brought to the fore is the dependence of Europe on, on Russian gas. But yep. put aside the fact of where it comes from and it's our dependence on gas full stop and what's happening now is the there's an increasing focus on where we get our energy from and the idea of energy independence is coming to the forefront again and people are talking about that and it's it's taken a war in europe a massive crisis for us to get to grips with this and you know um in germany for example there's talk of turning down thermostats by one degree in order to use less russian gas you know i mean why does it take a war why can we not respond like this to the climate crisis which is a way bigger threat to all of us than this relatively small event in uh, in europe because it is relatively small compared to the climate crisis uh, but anyway it's a good thing because it's bringing a focus on the fact that we are absolutely utterly dependent on fossil fuels which of course are killing us in the in the medium term so there could be a no, nobody wants to think of positives when there is carnage going on but it, my, my sort of rule of thumb is that whenever there is carnage going on a, a huge negative event you try and perm out the positive and curiously it could be this then it, it could be that there's a, a sort of a what a wake-up call well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, just a renewed focus. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go on the radio in a, in a couple of hours' time uh, to have a debate uh, on, on the uh, the idea that we should bring back fracking as the answer to this uh, this problem. You know, that's that's happening right now, which is obviously a stupid idea. But it's the kind of thing that's uh, that's happening. People are questioning where we get energy from. You know, why are we relying on other countries for our energy? You know, what can we do about it? Well, what's going on with energy bills? I know we're yeah. going to talk about that in a minute and stuff like that. But all all of that disruption has to be a good thing uh, because it airs these topics and it gets people thinking and that kind of stuff. I mean, and there are all kinds of silver linings coming out of this. I mean, Gazprom will no longer be the sponsor of international football competitions. Yes, yeah, huge. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Big deal. And, and that wasn't going to happen. You know, UEFA were wedded to Gazprom despite lots of people saying, you know, where football gets its money from is actually important. Mm. And look, uh, uh, Roman Abramovich is, is going to sell Chelsea. Yeah. You know, Everton may have problems. Suddenly, football's waking up to the fact that, you know, it's got a lot of dodgy money in it. I mean, mean, there's Saudi Arabian money, obviously, in the game as well. So, you know, you can look around and you can find things that are changing for the better because of what's happening right now. We've 
debated this before about kind of events in the Middle East, whether it's football, whether it's motor racing, whatever it happens to be. And actually, there hasn't been movement in areas where you would think that there might be. You know, you go to Dubai and, you know, areas that are essentially built by modern day slaves uh, and nothing is said. But this crisis does seem to have mobilized the money men into acting in a way that I don't think we've really seen before. Yeah, you know, and it's it's hard for me not to think that there are dual standards, okay? Because we've been waging war in the Middle East for decades, literally for decades, but it doesn't get us worked up like this war in Europe is getting us worked up. Not our media or our politicians, for sure. Is that because it's on our own doorstep? Is it because it's Russia? Is it because of the big red button that Putin has on his desk? Well, I think it's because it's in Europe, you know, and, and we've tolerated far worse events in the Middle East, not just tolerated them, you know, we've, we've led them, actually. This event in, in Europe is, is causing a very different reaction, and I see double standards in that. And you're not the first to raise that point. The nearest I've heard as a response to that, Dale, is, well, you know, yes, we did go into Iraq, we went into Afghanistan and other places too, but it was never to take those countries over as warped as the thinking might have been. It was never to subjugate the place uh, and, and take over the governance of it. Well, it was for regime change, very clearly, in yes. both cases. It's a fair point. Um, the debate will rumble on. The environmental element of it, we hope, just comes more to the forefront now. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not sure if on our topic list today we've got the environment impact of the war in the Ukraine, which is big. The environment impact of all wars is big, um, and you know, not least the setting fire of the oil fields in Kuwait. Well, I was going, yeah, do you remember yeah. that? And they just burnt for weeks, didn't they? It was an extraordinary sight. Lord knows what that did. I mean, it probably set whatever environmental agenda was around back then, probably not a very good one, but whatever was there probably went back about another 30 years on that one event. No, I think that's right. Well, let's talk about that environmental impact on Ukraine. Yeah, reading about that, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of miles of old coal tunnels under cities and uh, and farms in the, in the Donbass region. And and from satellite imagery, the, the levels of the ground is changing. It's going down and it's going up. And there's kind of flood water in the tunnels that's bringing toxic materials to the surface. It's a heavily industrialized zone as well. So there's a lot of old industrial pollution and radioactive waste is being stored there as well. And all of this is being kind of unearthed by the conflict, which is, you know, pretty scary. Just a little bit. We'll come back to that over the coming weeks, sadly. Inevitably, I sense we will. Here's another story, Dale. Only 6% of the G20 pandemic recovery spending is green. That's not a good headline. No, it's bad, isn't it? You know, uh, billions and billions of pounds that were dedicated to the recovery of our economies. And, and of course, we were awash with promises and slogans about building back better and greener, particularly from our prime minister. And uh, as usual, the numbers give the lie to that. And, and you know, 6% is a terribly low number. And as I read the article, it said that Britain did particularly badly with 10%. And I'm going, hang on a minute, 10% is better than 6%, you know, uh, is it that bad? And then I read on and Europe did 30%. <laughs> so, you know, that's shockingly better than uh, than 10%. The US was a mixed bag. And, and then there were other countries that were, in order to get an average of 6%, you can imagine, very much lower. And 3% of all spending actually went on things that drove the climate crisis in, in, a, in a positive, negative kind of sense, if you like. Um, I mean, the whole thing is, is, is a, terrible, uh, you know, a terrible waste. We did better coming out of the 2008 banking crisis when I think, uh, I think something like 10% of that recovery money was spent on environmentally beneficial zero carbon type stuff. 
Here's a question from Chris on Facebook. Dale, you run, this is a good question, actually. Um, you run a 100% renewable energy company, so why are you following the fossil fuel prices then? Yeah, come on, Dale Vince, what's happening here? No, it is a good question because it comes up all of the time in different variations, different you know variations on a theme. And and the I mean the the simple answer is we're not following the fossil fuel price. What's happening is we're being hit by market costs, and and it's a market dominated by fossil fuels. So and it's a fossil fuel problem that's that's causing it. But for example, the balancing market is uh, a place where every energy company kind of. Um, washes its face every day every half an hour of every day we balance our supply with our demand and if you're short and you have to buy in it's at a penalty rate and if you're long and you have to sell it's at a penalty rate it's just a penalty market and so the costs of energy in this balancing market have gone through the roof you know the the daily costs we can read about in the news you know where like uh, yesterday we hit a new record of uh, 370 pounds for a megawatt hour of electricity, right? In, um, in domestic terms, that's 37 pence for a unit of electricity. Wholesale, which is twice the actual selling price of retail electricity, which is madness. Uh, but in the balancing market, it was way worse. 50 pence a unit of electricity is, has been normal during this crisis. So yeah. we're being hit by these balancing charges, even though we're properly hedged, we're 100% green, all of that good stuff. That's one of the costs we're being hit by. And another one is we've just been hit with a bill by Ofgem of 7 million quid. And this is the cost of policy failure, the government's policy failure that saw 30 energy companies go bankrupt since August, 4 million customers get stranded and a a current bill for that of four billion pounds for the nation government's sure. brilliant idea is just dump that back onto energy bills and make energy companies pay for that uh here's a question that ties into this uh aj on twitter we need energy independence what's best nuclear power or fracking why <laughs> did aj have to bring up fracking that's a choose your poison question yeah. isn't it <laughs> yeah would you rather shoot yourself in the head or shoot yourself in the heart i'm not really sure let me think about that for a second <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not choosing one of them. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, it's to, to put that question to you is just like, you know, what what would you like to eat for dinner? A dog shit sandwich or a, <laughs> or a dog or a dog? You know, it just doesn't. That's <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, but AJ, thank you for raising. Some listeners said to me, the only good thing about fracking is that it's got a funny name. Um, and I thought, well, there's maybe something in that. Yeah. And the other good thing about fracking is it never happened. Is that a conspiracy theory? No, no, I mean, uh, it never took off. So, oh, I, I mean, see, yes. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we gave it a go and then kind of stopped when people in Preston started being tossed out of their beds in the middle of the night, <laughs> right. uh, which a, uh, an MP recently described to me as it was just like a lorry going past. And a fella called up from Preston and said, that man you just had on is an asshole. It wasn't like a lorry going past. I nearly came through my bedroom ceiling. Um, so that gave you an idea of what's really going on. On energy bills, I have my uh, email this week. Everybody's getting it, telling them about the increase in the price. And you look at this and think, we're used to seeing an annual assessment of your bills. It goes up a little bit, rate of inflation or whatever. And now we're seeing these kind of huge doubling of your bills. There it is. You know, It looks like oh, you were paying £900. You're now going to pay £1,800. And yeah. this story talks about energy bills being tipped to hit 3000 quid. Yeah, uh, absolutely right. So uh, what's happening is April the 1st, the uh, the price cap goes up off Gemma pushing up the price of energy. It's, it's happening in retrospect. It's a reaction to energy prices of the last six months with a little bit of forward looking as well. And we can already see that on October the 1st, it's a biannual thing. 
bills will go up again. And, you know, the, the, uh, the smart money says energy bills are going to be around £3,000 a year by then, which is three times what they were before the energy crisis. So, you know, I don't know, a year ago, two years ago, something like that, which is madness. And, you know, it's making energy unaffordable for millions of people. And the government are doing nothing about it. I mean, they're doing worse than nothing, actually, with the retail price cap, but without touching wholesale prices, leaving the oil companies to rake in tens of billions of pounds from the crisis. And that money is coming from the retail sector. Um, And, you know, they're refusing a windfall tax, which is the proper and right thing to do. The International Energy Agency came out today and said the very same thing. Internationally, governments should place a windfall tax on the oil companies because yep. they're making a killing out of this crisis. They didn't say that, they my words. And actually, uh, from my perspective, they should take that money that is unearned and unexpected and put it back where it came from, which yeah. is in the retail sector, and, and actually subsidize energy bills because the cost of energy is too high. Yeah, absolutely. Um, here's a question from Paul. Uh, it says, Dale, what's the best solution for all the cars on the road today that run on petrol or diesel and have years of road life left in them? Um, I'm in favour of going electric, but scrapping my car is wasteful. Do we, one, convert fossil cars to electric, two, use biofuel? Maybe you could make green gas for cars. Uh, what can you tell us, Dale? Uh, keep up the good work. And there is a point here, isn't there? That, you know, a fellow rang us recently and made the point about his Range Rover, whatever it was, that uh, although it was diesel, it uses, uh, you know, it, it's diesel, but if you look at the engine and the components in it and the various other fluids that get added to that, I can't remember quite what the name of it is, actually what comes out the other end is, you know, a fairly green result. So how, how do we square all these circles? I can't imagine anything comes out the tailpipe is green. He didn't mean that, did he? I think he did. I think what he was saying actually was that it was greener than some cars that are purporting to be, you know, this is a, an 1100 Fiesta and it runs on petrol. It doesn't use very much. And although his 2.4 litre Range Rover looks worse, actually the environmental elements of it are no worse because of the way it runs and, and the way the engine is constructed. Well, that could be bollocks, by the way. It could be bollocks. He could just be trying to convince himself that it's okay to run around in a great big range. Well, I guess there is that thing, isn't it? You could have a a one-litre car that you drive, you know, 2,000 miles a week, or you could have a four-litre car that you drive 2,000 miles a year. So you could have a one-litre car that you drive 4,000 miles a year. That's true. Which would be even better. But anyway, moving past that to the question. It's a good question. There are 30 million cars on the road of Britain today. And I don't know if there are like maybe 150,000 electric vehicles at the moment. Take up of that is like uh, beating all expectations of the industry, but still a drop in the ocean compared to the 30 million. And how long is it going to take to replace those? And actually, is scrapping them the best thing to do? It it probably isn't. Uh, Converting to electric is feasible. And there are a few people out there that are starting to get their heads around that. I mean, you, you know, cars are basically fairly fairly enduring pieces of engineering yeah and if you could just pull the engine out and stick a motor electric motor and some batteries in you know you're, you're on your way which is what we're trying to do with this uh volkswagen campervan project so uh, to be solar powered so there's a big case to be made for retrofitting electric cars absolutely uh running on green gas is an interesting idea um it's still burning stuff though so i mean i think it's less ideal than yeah. than, a, than a switch to electric and you know most people do 
five, six thousand miles a year in a car, True. you know. But what, what uh, about you know. the, we keep hearing about the carbon, and I know this is maybe a sort of Jeremy Clarkson-like argument, but the carbon footprint of an electric car isn't exactly tickety-boo, seems to be the headlines. And actually, when you look into the, the journey, the batteries, the replacement, the renewables, the mining for the components that make the battery, mm. all of these things side by side before they've left the forecourt, the electric car has had a, a, a more impactful journey on the environment than the, the fossil fuel car. Is that true? Yeah. Well, look, I, I think I read a stat a long time ago that said roughly 80% of the carbon footprint of an electric car comes in the construction of it and 20% from the running of it, uh, and vice versa for an internal combustion engine car. Actually, 80% is in the running of it. And if that's the case, then it makes a great deal of sense to take all of these combustion cars that have been built and, and make a conversion of them and, and you know, use the, the metal and the engineering that is there and, and run them on renewable energy. You've still got to get batteries and stuff, but there's an awful lot of fuss made about things like cobalt uh, and its use in batteries, yeah, overlooking the fact that it's been used in petrol refinery for, for like ever, you know. Yeah. And so there's, a, there's always a spotlight shone on environmental issues that's, uh, that isn't shone on the business as usual stuff that we've just been doing all of this time, you know, and the comparisons that are made are often not proper apples for apples type comparisons. And in any event, batteries, lithium ion batteries can, can be recycled endlessly. Fossil fuels are a single use fuel. It's like single use plastic, you know, uh, you, you dig it out of the ground, you refine it, you put, by the way, enormous amounts of electricity into the refining process to make a gallon of petrol. Then you burn it and it's gone and you do it again. Not the same with lithium mining. There is an impact from it, but once you've got the lithium, you keep using it. Here's an interesting one about net zero. Make young people pay for it. Uh, it's fair. It's an old buffer somewhere. Uh, yeah, well, you just know. When you see the headline, you just know that when the first paragraph of the term House of Lords is going to crop up, and I wasn't disappointed. Uh, younger generations should pay for uh, the government's net zero pledge instead of current bill players who will not benefit from it, a House of Lords committee has said. Lord Hollick says the amount that can realistically be raised via surcharges on energy bills is not enough. Uh, let's look at future generations. Kick it down the road, hey! Kick that can down the road. I mean, there's I'm kind of a fan of the sentiment. If I don't have to pay for it, to be honest, Dale, you know. <laughs> but yeah, there's a different argument. Get my kids to pay there. for it. <laughs> Older people have caused it. Actually, you know, yeah, younger people may benefit from the avoidance of the climate crisis, but older people have caused it. They've lived their lives with the consumption of fossil fuels, but they didn't know, did they? Problem. Didn't know any better. That may be so. Maybe we come back to that point, you know, let's have a windfall tax to fund the climate crisis on the old countries because they knew it was a problem back then. Yeah. You know, I don't buy this intergenerational stuff anyway. Look, we're, you know, I, I just, I think it's, it's unnecessary to take that kind of approach and say, well, look, you guys are going to benefit, so you should pay for it. I mean, young people will already pick up a, a way bigger financial burden than older people do, you know, and, and have less, have much less. You know, we're, we're living in a time, you know, for the first time in a long while when this generation of people have less than their parents. Yeah, isn't that funny? Mm. Isn't well, that no, interesting? Not. <laughs> We've got to, yeah, not if you are that generation. Shelley says, will the government finally push for net zero now? Uh, they've seen what's unfolding in Ukraine, just tying it back into that story. Well, any sensible government would, right? So there's your answer. Obviously, it's a big fat no. What our government are pushing for is, and it's just, it's mind-bogglingly stupid, 
is more drilling in the North Sea. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Rishi Sunak was uh, it was a bit of posturing. He wanted to fast track the uh, licenses for six new gas fields in the North Sea, uh, you know, because of the crisis, blah, blah, blah. Turns out that all six of them, once they've got built, which is going to take years, if not a decade, yep. would have enough gas to run our country for six months. A sensible government would say that, you know, let's get to energy independence and we get net zero that way as well. But our government, no, let's dig more oil and gas out of the North Sea. And let's even look at fracking again, which is, I mean, oh my God, it's scary yeah. and unbelievable that it's come back to the table. Because not the answer. Half of the gas Britain uses today comes from our North Sea and it's gone up in price sometimes in this crisis up to tenfold yeah. because the global price is. So having your own fossil fuels doesn't protect you from the price shock anyway. Do you know, as you were saying that, I just Googled fracking and news. And in the first paragraph of the idea of bringing back fracking, guess what words appear? The House of Lords. <laughs> they don't disappoint us. They don't, do they? Uh, here's, a head- <laughs> here's a headline. Forest Green Rovers signs team of skeletons. I saw this headline. I thought, what the hell is this about? What are you doing over there, Dale? I think it's a gift to all of those people that vegan diets are lacking yeah. in nutrition. That this is an archaeology story, right? <laughs> it is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've we've been doing some digging at our new site, Eco Park, where we're going to start work on a training ground uh, complex soon. And um, there's an old Roman villa under the ground there somewhere. So one of our planning conditions was to do a proper archaeological dig across the whole site. We started a few weeks ago and started finding some interesting things. And then we found some bodies and then some more. And one day this week, I think it was two days ago, we actually reached 11 bodies, which I'd been hoping for because as we as we began to collect them, I was thinking, come on, 11's a football team. Uh, I hope we can find that many. And we have, which is super cool. Uh, but we found some amazing coins, uh, pottery, wow. and foundations of an old workshop. I mean, it looks like there was a Roman settlement there for at least 200 years. That's extraordinary. Dale, that is it for this episode. Have a cracking week. Thanks, Ian. We will speak in a week's time. Don't forget, of course, to follow this podcast from your podcast provider and do leave a review there as well. Follow Dale on Twitter too. That's twitter.com slash dalevince and facebook.com slash dalevince. Zero carbon. East off.